it's another blessed opportunity that we certainly have this Lord's Day evening to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. And as was mentioned earlier, certainly we're thankful not only for the membership of our congregation people that are here, but certainly a number of visitors who've come our way. We're so delighted to have you, and we genuinely trust and hope that our service will be encouraging and uplifting, scripturally directed and sound, so that each of us will be able this present week to perhaps be better challenged and more encouraged in our service to our Heavenly Father. Last Sunday evening during the lesson, we gave thought to a subject entitled, A Building of God. And on that occasion, drawn from the text of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, we gave appreciation to that building. Now, it's not a physical edifice, but we learned that that building of God and the topic and the title of that pointed us to an appreciation of that body that you and I shall have in that morning of resurrection. That interesting and very intriguing time in which... The Lord Jesus Christ shall have returned and God will provide to all of, the, of those individuals, of course, a body specially fit and prepared for the eternity that then stands before it. As we looked at that lesson, though, there were some issues that were raised and some matters that really needed a little bit more attention. And so tonight is a bit of a sequel to that lesson. And in so doing, I would invite you to briefly consider the topic of recognition and remembrance following or after the time of death. I suppose all of us, and perhaps on many occasions, turn our attention to thoughts about that series of moments, or at least that consideration of what happens after death. And in so doing, that could by itself take a great number of lessons or a great number of considerations. Tonight our focus will be a bit more limited though, though as we simply strive to allow the Word of God to put before us some passages that highlight something very interesting. You'll notice on this very next slide, we shall really begin by at least contemplating briefly the topic of hope. The word hope is so often represented in the Scriptures as a matter of tremendous encouragement. You and I are saved by hope, borrowing the words of Romans 8.24. It is such that, in fact, there are three great entities. There's faith, there's hope, and there's charity. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. You and I know that hope is a tremendously vital and significant matter. And in fact, the Scriptures place it before us on many occasions. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to His purpose. And we so easily recollect, not only a passage like that one, but that famous refrain of James 1, verse number 12, in which the inspired writer pointed out, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Mention is made of a crown of life and the promise of its reception by some class of individuals. The matter then of remembrance and recognition... As we develop that thought perhaps more clearly, might we begin like this? We perhaps would do well to fill in some gaps left in that lesson last Sunday evening as we think a little bit about the topic of death by itself. I realize as we give thought to it that the human family, apart from God I should add, has struggled for centuries to try and understand death, to try and appreciate what it really is and that which follows it. All we need to do is open the Word of God and He clarifies for us what death is. And not only that, He identifies in no uncertain terms 
those characteristics that take place following it. Perhaps for reasons like that, you'll notice, you and I should, of course, always be quickly reminded that the human family, an individual, a human being, consists of a physical part, that which you and I typically refer to as the body, but there is a non-physical part. The Bible on occasion refers to it as the spirit. On other occasions, it's called the soul. Be that as it may, we understand it is a non-physical entity in a sense that we can develop it with some verses like these. Jesus made a clear distinction relative to it, didn't He, in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 10, when He pointed out, Fear not them which can kill the body, but have nothing that they can do to the soul, but rather fear Him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The Lord made a grand division, didn't He, in appreciation that there is a body, but there is, of course, this soul, this spiritual entity. We know that spiritual entity, that soul, is given by God Himself. Zechariah, though an ancient prophet he was, commented in Zechariah 12 verse 1 that it's God that formeth the spirit of man within him. That spirit then, that of course is provided at the time of conception and proceeds to be dwelling within that physical body for a while is of course the subject for you and for me for the next few moments. Notice how different that consideration is to that which is the body. This body that you and I look upon with our physical eyes and that which we're able to touch with the hand and that which we're able to ornament and adorn in a number of ways, that body, of course, mustn't be looked upon as it's completely invaluable. But notice that those chemical compositions and the elements of which it's made is the same ones that comprise soil, basically. You and I are dirt. We're made out of the very same things that it is. With regard to that, we remember that thunderous statement that God, of course, in the long ago made to Adam. Out of the dust of the ground wast thou taken. But he quickly promised, and this was after the sin that Adam and Eve had committed, but he quickly made affirmation in Genesis 3.19, that out of that dust wast thou taken, and to that dust shalt thou return. Surely in light of a comment like that one, you recognize so easily then the characteristic that takes place at that moment of death. In our universities and in our colleges, there are entire classes. In fact, at Lipscomb, one of the psychologists on our staff is a specialist in the arena of death. Now, it is a thankful matter, it seems to me, and I'm sure to all of us that at least he is thoroughly acquainted with the teaching of Scripture but there is a great need in our society for knowledge and assistance and help as individuals deal with what death is. And yet the Scriptures affirm in James 2 verse 26 exactly what death is, doesn't it? We remember on that occasion as James spoke with such forcefulness and power, he commented that just as the body without the Spirit is dead, so too faith without works is dead. And although the prime topic of that chapter had to do with faith on the one hand and works on the other, along the way He taught us such a great truth relative to the matter of death. Death, of course, is that instance, as you and I refer to it, when that spirit departs or leaves the body. And it's still interesting to appreciate it does not say that spirit dies. 
It does not say that spirit is annihilated. It doesn't say that it falls out of existence. It just departs the body is all. We'll have much more to say about that a bit later in our lesson this evening. But as you contemplate the departure of that spirit from the body, you notice that that spirit is still very much alive. It's just that it's dwelling elsewhere, someplace besides that body. Perhaps this next slide, as we develop that thought a bit more thoroughly, will help us recollect a few instances in Scripture in which this very issue took center stage. I might invite you to revisit with me the long ago in Genesis 35. It was on that occasion that we remember that Jacob's favorite wife, her name was Rachel, and she was giving birth to her younger son. You and I have come in time to recognize his name as Benjamin. However, in the process of giving birth to that youngster, very unfortunately, she passed away. But it's so intriguing the way in which that comment is made. For it says, as her soul was departing, for she died. The departure of her spirit, the departure of Rachel's soul coincided with the reality of her death the departure of the soul. The soul that you and I have is what animates this physical body. As long as the spirit indwells it, the body is alive. But if and when that spirit departs, we recognize the natural artifact and consequence is the death of that body. No wonder you can rec recollect with me in 1 Kings 17, verses 17 and following, Another interest, intriguing episode in the life and times of Elijah. It was there that you may recall that there was a widow woman and her son to whom Elijah had himself made arrangement. You might recall the, the boy became sick. In fact, so sick that he died. And the text is very careful in that his breath departed from him. However, Elijah prayed unto God, in fact, took the body, the corpse, if you please, and proceeded to pray over it. And the text is very clear. When the soul came back, the boy revived. When the soul came back, God blessed that widow woman and her son on that occasion with the return of that youngster's soul, and the boy revived. He, in essence, returned to life. One more time, we notice mention made of a return of the soul which had departed. Maybe another example. What about the saga presented to you and to me in the 90th Psalm? We remember there highlighted for us the fact that the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength sorrow, and we fly away. Did you notice the last phrase? Sometimes we sing a song, we fly away, recognizing that at death there is simply the departure of that spirit. Oh, how interesting it is. Wasn't it true that Stephen in Acts 7 verse 59, on that moment when, of course, he was in the process of being slain, being stoned to death, he looked up and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here was one who was about to die, and yet he knew well that that spirit that was really him was going to last long beyond what his physical death would be. And he prayed unto the Lord Jesus Christ that it might be a sweet reception of his spirit. 
these verses at least so powerfully confirm in our mind the thought that death is by no means the end. A transition. A time in which the spirit departs the body. Surely as you look at what comes next, you rec recognize with me then that that stage and that scene in which following death... We now know the Bible teaches that there is a, an abode, a receptacle, if you will, in which that spirit abides once it departs the body. You might remember that in ancient times there was thoughts and fears on the part of some that those spirits were loose and running around on the earth, but the Scriptures now do not uphold the fullness of that idea. There is a receptacle, an abode known as Hades in which those departed spirits abide until the time of the final resurrection. As far as mention made of that place known as Hades, frequently we find it mentioned and referenced. Acts 2.31, it was there that Jesus' spirit went after He was crucified and prior to His resurrection. Acts 2 verse 31. It was that place in which we remember many times Jesus Himself in His preaching ministry would refer to it. And on many occasions, of course, others did as well. This place known as Hades. Sometimes in other ancient cultures it was referred to by a different name, admittedly. On, on some occasions it was called the Elysian Fields. On other occasions it was recognized by various and sundry descriptions. But the Lord Jesus did use the word Hades, so it would be perfectly right for you and me to use it as well. This place known as Hades, we understand that it itself is not a permanent place in the sense that those souls that have entered there will forevermore be there. We know that from a number of passages, not the least of which would be the 20th chapter of Revelation. It was there as nearly the curtain closes on the fullness of inspiration. John the Revelator was informed and so interestingly and directly asserted that there's coming a time when Hades will be emptied. Those souls that have flooded into it will seemingly immediately flood out of it. And when they do, that'll be the time of the Lord's return, of course, and they will flood back into a particularly prepared body like the one we studied last Sunday evening. As they do that, we notice that Hades itself will be destroyed on that occasion. Revelation 20, verse number 14. With the close of that idea, you then recognize what appears to be then the immediate conclusion. There is coming a remarkable moment of judgment. We highlighted that in passing as a portion of the lesson this morning. Judgment. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Paul's comments in 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 10. Doesn't it almost cause us to immediately recollect the old time statements of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12? In the closing chapter of that book, Solomon so powerfully and directly asserted also about the nature of that day of judgment. In fact, let's begin in verse 13 of that chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. 
one more time the amazing consideration of that time, that occurrence of judgment. John reminded us in Revelation twenty-two twelve about the fact that that judgment would be according to each one's works. No wonder as we come near the close of that slide, we are then in position to still ask a pertinent question. That question being related to remembrance and related to recollection and related to recognition. As you begin the top of that slide with me, so far our discussions have pointed us in the direction there's going to be a remarkable reality after the time of death, of course. Will we recognize one another in heaven? Will we have a memory related to will we remember what was done on earth while we lived there? Will we remember the circumstances and the scenes and the events that transpired previously? Those are very good questions. I would invite us to at least give some thought to a few passages of Scripture, allowing God to at least chime in with some helpful information, perhaps even some direct answers. We might well begin by observing the text that Lucas read earlier, taken from the 22nd verse of Matthew chapter 7. We find in a passage like that one that Jesus, in the midst of this Sermon on the Mount, commented like this, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, for many shall say unto me in that day. You might notice he says they're not going to say it till that day. But on that day they'll say, Did we not prophesy in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? it would appear that they had a very clear recollection of what they thought they were doing in the name of the Lord. They gave the impression that they easily remembered that they had preached in the Lord's name, that they had done other various and sundry works in His name. In fact, even speaking in tongues, for instance, or laboring in His name. But you might notice there appeared to be a remembrance in light of what they were facing and in light of what they were experiencing. To that might we add the text of Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. It was on this occasion that the fifth of the seals were being loosed. As those seals were loosed, we remember on this occasion that there were some souls who were seen. They were beneath the altar and they cried out, Oh God, how long! until the cause for which we died is vindicated. They apparently were able to remember that they had been slaughtered, slain, and put to death because of the nature of their Christianity. They hadn't done insult to the will of the Roman Empire. They were killed because they were Christians, and they pleaded with God how long until this cause is vindicated. Notice they appeared to have been able to remember to that might we add Luke 16, verses 19 on to the end of that chapter. I'm sure that many of us have raced to that particular location already in our mind as we remember both the rich man and Lazarus. It does appear that that is a parable. But might we be quick to note, the Lord gives some very clear details about the nature of that which transpired following the death of Lazarus and following the death of the rich man. And you and I can easily recall them. Lazarus, 
You might remember he lifted up his eyes and found himself in a place of bliss, a place of comfort. He lifted up his eyes and found himself far different than the place he previously was. But on the other hand, the rich man lifted up his eyes and the text says twice that he was in torment. That appears to directly indicate, especially in light of the statements that were made, wasn't it Father Abraham who said, Remember that in thy lifetime... Lazarus had the poor things, you had the good things. He even asserted that he would remember. But now, of course, Abraham said things are reversed. Thou art tormented, you rich man, and Lazarus is the one comforted. A remembrance. Might we be quick to appreciate that surely will be one of the most terrible aspects. If we're lost after we die, we're going to remember that we had opportunity to obey the gospel or at least a nearness and the opportunity and possibility, but we shirked that duty. We failed to obey. You'll notice that those attributes of remembrance are highlighted later in the same chapter. Do you remember that again? That rich man pleaded. He said, I have five brothers. And he begged, please send someone to talk to them, teach them, preach to them. He remembered well that there were some brothers of his on earth and they were lost. And they needed, of course, some message, the message of salvation that would lead and prompt them hopefully to do something about it. Remembrance? You'll notice as we develop that thought further, even if we have used that as a very strong and forceful answer to one of our questions, namely that of remembrance, what about recognition? Will we recognize one another in that pearly and beautiful place called heaven? Jonathan has led us in some songs that have touched upon that topic. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That together with so many others lead us to sweetly contemplate that golden strand, that place called heaven. We know that Jesus taught so well, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. The first three verses of John 14. When you and I think about the nature of that place, let us allow it to be motivated by these next few observations. First of all, Identification. Let's start in the book of Genesis, the Old Testament. And let's maybe ask it in light of six individuals, some of whom are mentioned there, some we will arrive at in Exodus, and some even as far as Deuteronomy. First, Abraham. In Genesis 25:8, we notice on that occasion it develops for us the reality that Abraham died. As great a servant of God as he was, he died at that age of 175 years. And when he died, the text is very clear and says, He was gathered unto his people. He gave up the ghost. I would ask you to at least keep in mind for a moment that phrase, gathered unto his people. But to it, let's add this one. In that same chapter, nine verses later, reference is made of Ishmael. He too also died, and the text identifies so powerfully that he was gathered unto his people. Keeping that thought in mind, let's look at a third one. In Genesis 35, 
not too many verses after the very death of others that we had noted previously in the lesson tonight. We appreciate that Isaac died. One more time, the ancient writer, Moses of course, pointed out very clearly he was gathered unto his people. Fourth example, Jacob. Near the close of the book of Genesis, we find now he dwelling in the land of Egypt. He too also, it says right before he died, he addressed his sons and foretold the future for them in light of the kinds of people they would be. But then he says, he too was gathered to his people. Number five, Moses. As we arrive near the close of the book of Deuteronomy, we remember in Deuteronomy 32, it is there described for us the fact that he too would be gathered to his people. Same chapter, same verse, same comment relative to his brother Aaron. In all six of those instances, I've tried to at least ask you to consider the phrase gathered unto his people. May I submit that we might be tempted to think maybe that just means that the body of these gentlemen, be it Abraham or Moses or Aaron, it was buried in the same cemetery with all of his ancestors. I would submit to you that cannot be what it means. For look at two of them. Let's try Jacob on for size. Jacob was in Egypt when he died. Now he had already told them that he wanted to be buried in that same cave of Machpelah with his ancestors, but that was in the land of Canaan, hundreds of miles away. It would seem then that phrase gathered to his people had a different connotation, a different idea in mind than the placement of his physical remains. To that might we consider Moses briefly. He too was said, God in fact foretold relative to him, you'd be gathered to his people. You and I know well Moses was not buried in the family cemetery. As the book of Deuteronomy closed, he died somewhere on Mount Nebo that no man to this day knows where it was, and God buried him. It's clear in those two instances that this phrase, gathered to his people, had nothing to do with where the physical remains were buried. It had to do with apparently there were some people to whom he was going to be going, some individuals, some ancestors to whom he would now be able to visit and to see. His people. Did you see with me the character of the possessive adjective? They're not just general people, they're his people. Might those be the first of some considerations reminding us that since it does say he is, it would seem that there was a strong inclination of recognition. But let's go further. Before we accept too quickly that thought, I suppose, you'll notice that the bottom of that slide challenges us in relation to these comments at the top of this next slide as well. The implication being recognition following death. Let's add to it the second observation. Let's leap forward to the days of the ancient man David the king. In the Old Testament, you remember that David... He, of course, did what he should never have done. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and to that activity was born a baby boy. Sadly, though, that baby boy became sick. In fact, that baby boy died. You might recall in the moments leading up to the death of that child, David was beside himself with grief, praying unto God and hoping that things would work out for the healthfulness of that child. But it was not to be. The child died. 
David's servants were very much concerned about how David would receive the news of the child's death. But upon receiving the news, David cleaned himself up. He, in fact, had a far brighter disposition, and they were perplexed. In, first, in 2 Samuel 12, David explained why. In light of the death of that child, David rather interestingly and so very directly said, I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. Did you notice he used a possessive pronoun? He will not return to me, but I will go to him. That statement, it seems, can only make sense in light of the expectation David had of seeing that soul again, appreciating the very entity of what was that little boy. Recognition after death, David believed in it. What about a third consideration? Those remarkable statements of Job in the 19th chapter of that book. In verses 25 to 27 of Job 19, we find in the midst of that ancient patriarchal era, Job made comment that he knew about his own demise. He even affirmed worms are going to eat this body. He knew the body would deteriorate and decay back into dust. But in that same context, he identified, I know I'll see my Redeemer. And as he spoke about that, he again used a personal reference with respect to himself as well as the blessedness attached to an element of recognition. It would seem that both David as well as Job thoroughly believed in this. Look at the fourth one. That scene of the judgment portrayed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. In verses 38 to 41 of Matthew chapter 12, the Savior Himself spoke about the nature of judgment. That isn't too lengthy a reading. I would ask you to consider it as I read it before us. The Lord had been asked some very pertinent questions, and as He expressed the sentiments of heaven's will, these are the comments He made. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from Thee. But He answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The implication of the Lord's statement is these various classes of people will rise in the judgment, those of Nineveh, and they're actually going to condemn, he says, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But the modern-day people of Capernaum in the Lord's day refused to repent. Apparently there would be a recognition then. Those of Nineveh would recognize those of Capernaum and otherwise, and there would be an opportunity to pronounce a matter of condemnation and an opportunity to carry forth the fullness of that in light of that identification. Perhaps by this point we're seeing that there at least seem to be some references that help settle our mind on points like these. Surely in light of them, that judgment scene leads us to one final slide, one final set of considerations. And it happens to be these two. 
the Mount of Transfiguration. Isn't it still an overwhelming thing to give thought that on that marvelous occurrence of Matthew 17, here was the Lord Himself making His way toward that place in Jerusalem. He knew His death was soon to be a matter of reality. And yet on that mount appeared both Moses and Elijah. And Peter recognized them. He recognized, here is Moses and Elijah. He even offered to construct three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It was, though, after that scene concluded that, of course, the Lord had some serious teaching for him relative to the fact that that was to be understood as a matter preparatory for the Lord's death. Surely, as Peter later would reveal that in 2 Peter chapter 1, he highlighted, we heard him, and he heard that voice from heaven. You'll notice there appears to have been a recognition and identification about both Moses and Elijah. Maybe one final consideration, the sweet refrain of the comments of Paul. He too appears to have strongly believed in this matter of recognition. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 14, he made statement about on that time of judgment that he would be able to appear with the Corinthians or perhaps that they would appear with him in that time of the sweetness of that judgment in a positive way. Same kind of comment he made concerning the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.19 and later in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. In all of those instances... What sense would it make if there was to be no recognition? For Paul said they would appear with him and they would be his joy. And they would, of course, be a strong part of what would be the crown that Paul would be able to wear. Identification, recognition, that of course leads to maybe one final good question. If there is to be a recognition then, after the time of our death, you and I give consideration to being in heaven and recognizing the precious souls there that also are saved with us, it immediately allows us to wonder, what about those individuals that are lost and are not there? The Bible doesn't seem to speak quite as much about that state of affairs. But you and I seemingly can put together a few verses and lead to this answer. We are told that heaven is a place of sweetness and bliss and eternal joy and happiness. It is a place that is not marred or tarnished with either tear or sorrow in any way, Revelation 21.4. It is a place in which there is no sin of any kind, Revelation 21.8, Revelation 21.27. It is a place in which there seems to be nothing that will bring tears of sadness in any way. It does appear then that you and I will recognize at the moment of judgment the following, that those who are lost in light of their refusal and their disobedience and their rebellion, that God's judgment and His justice will in fact be entirely right and fair. And we will not be apparently eternally bothered by those that are not there. Furthermore, it may well be that our memory, at least for those matters, God will take care of. There doesn't seem to be a great number of verses that fill in that consideration, but it seems one of those two must surely be the case. At this much, we can certainly say this, don't you want to be in heaven? 
And don't you want to enjoy the faithfulness and the bliss for all eternity of that rest promised in Revelation 14, 13? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. A place of rest. This evening we have attempted to look more carefully at some of those issues raised in the lesson last week. To conclude tonight's lesson, there seems to be not too much more that needs to be said. You and I recognize that there will be a time of our passing, at least from the physical to the recognition of what's beyond, because you and I are immortal spirits. That spirit's going to depart this body someday. Are you ready for it? What if that were to happen tonight? Are you prepared? What about tomorrow? Are you and I ready? If we're not, today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. We would be delighted to assist you in your obedience to the gospel. The God of heaven dispatched His Son, the second member of the Godhead, for the purpose of providing an opportunity for salvation. He beckons and pleads with us to come. In that text, known often as the great invitation, He simply says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. That text of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30 is the finest invitation, isn't it? Tonight, if you need to come, we'd be happy to assist you in your obedience. Maybe as an alien sinner, one who would desire to put on Christ in baptism as that's preceded by your belief, your repentance, and your confession. But if you are a child of God that has erred from faithfulness, you have chosen the wrong path of late. Why not come back to your first love? Why not return to the faithful side of the one who died for you so that you can have all that hope of which we've spoken tonight, a hope of being recognized by all the faithful of the ages and to look forward to being a part of that grand and glorious day. Tonight, if we could be of help to you, praying with you in a public way for forgiveness and rededication, why not come? And why not do it at once while together we stand and while we sing?